0: n-e-t-s-u-i-t-e dot com slash w-t-f all right let's do this how are you what the fuckers what the fuck buddies what the fucking ears what the fucksters? what the fuck publicans what the fuckocrats what's happening I'm Mark Maron this is my podcast w-t-f welcome to it thank you for joining me If you're new to it, welcome. Make sure you go check out the archives over there on the Stitcher app. You can go back and get them all. All all the 900 and some odd things. But anyways, my point is welcome. I am broadcasting from the new garage, and I'm happy to say that the garage has been christened by tears. Uh, it happened. I don't even want to mention the guest because it actually didn't happen on Mike. It have to it happened afterwards, after a conversation where it got a little emotionally overwhelming. But, but tears have been shed here in the garage. And that's, uh, that's good. It needed that. It needed uh, that sort of like breaking the champagne bottle on the ship's hull before it uh, backs into the ocean. Now the we have coronated. We have, uh, we have blessed. And this garage seems to actually have, have a bit of magic of its own. This is an old house that I have bought. And old houses tend to have magic if they've been around a while. I'm, I'm not going to say there's a ghost in the house, but there might be. There might be. Things have been moved. Uh, things have fallen down and broken. So as long as, um, I can breathe properly and, uh, no weird chasms to strange worlds open in the house. I think I'm okay with the ghost. Maybe we can negotiate some sort of, um, way of living together. This house was built in 1908 folks, 1908. And it's still solid, still beautiful. Getting a lot of emails. You know what? Let me uh, first tell you that Bill Simmons is on the show today. Bill Simmons, a podcaster, a writer. You can get all his stuff at TheRinger.com. He had me on his show. Now I'm having him on mine. we were often mentioned together in articles about podcasting at the beginning. Uh, we're very different. Uh, we have different focuses. You know, he respects me. I respect him. For, for me, a guy who knows nothing about sports but understands the passion, understands it. So that's coming up soon. People are emailing me asking me how the cats are adjusting to the new house. Are you fucking kidding me? They've never been happier in their life. They're not like I my old house, folks, honestly was 929 square feet. This new house is bigger. I'll leave it at that. It's bigger. And uh, these cats, have ne- they've made it. They, they don't even think about going outside. That's how comfortable they are. They can each have their own room if they'd like. They can sleep in different places. But Buster Kitten is still kind of a fucking asshole and persists on beating up Old Man Monkey and Old Lady Fonda. Uh, I, I don't know what to do. I'm not getting another kitten so he can have somebody closer to his own age to play with. But... Uh, but that's what's going on. They're they're very happy. They're eating. They're they're healthy. And uh they they seem um they seem better than they were at the old house. Maybe that old house was possessed by a lot of emotional baggage and and memories that weren't so great for the cats or myself. Maybe I'm telling you folks, I'm not I'm not regretting uh leaving the old house. And and that's that's a lot to say because a lot happened there. I was very comfortable there, but I'm really I'm really in this and I'm having, I'm having a hard time. You know, I, I need to put some time into putting this room together. And knowing me, that could go on for years. Like I went through a a, a wave of, I moved all of my stuff from my house over here and spread it out as best I could. It, it, it really, I need more stuff. Uh, not I don't want to get just any stuff. But I need more stuff. So that's going to start to unfold over time. I don't know how long it'll take. And I don't know how long it'll take to get everything in this garage that I want. But uh, I do know... I'm happy to be here. The other thing I wanted to talk about is that I I neglected to mention that last week, what night was it, last Tuesday, that I did a show with Dean Delray. Dean Delray put on a show with a bunch of rockers. Uh, It was an evening of comedy with me and Dean and Joey Diaz uh, and Bill Burr. And then there was a band, and that band, including me sometimes, including Bill Burr a little bit, but Scott Ian, uh, Nikki Six. Um, Rudy Sarzo, Michael Devon, Josh Z played guitar. Steve Gorman played drums. Billy Rowe played guitar. And the album, here's the thing, the album that we did was all of Powerage. That was the night. For, we did a stand-up comedy show, and then they played Powerage straight through and with a couple other songs. And I got to sit in on Down Payment Blues, which, as some of you know, was the original theme song for this podcast? Till we started to get panicky about it, and we pulled it. But I also used it on my old radio show. It's one of the best songs ever, "Down Payment Blues" by uh, by ACDC. And I got to play that, and it was pretty exciting. It was me, Scott Ian, Billy Rowe, um, Josh Z, Dino singing, uh, Mike Devin, Michael Devin on bass, and uh, and Steve Gorman on drums. And I was uh, I was I was elated. It was fucking great, man. It was fucking great. I guess I'm just reporting that uh, I had a good time. It, would that be? Is that okay? Is that okay? I, I had a great time. I'm gonna. I've decided to have more good times in my life. But uh, you know, I don't want to sound too chipper. God forbid. I do want to you know, make sure everyone knows I am going to be in Europe next week. My shows in London, Oslo, Stockholm, Amsterdam and uh dublin get tickets go to wtfpod.com slash tour also i wanted to give a shout out as they say in the game to uh the woman in my life sarah kane who has an opening this is one of the reasons we plan the trip like this she has a, a big uh, opening at the timothy taylor gallery in london next week on april 18th so now it's my pleasure to uh share a conversation i have with uh, bill simmons Many of you are fans of Bill Simmons, great podcaster, great writer. Uh, Everything is available, both his writing and podcast, are available at theringer.com, and also the documentary Andre the Giant premieres on HBO tomorrow, April 10th at 10 p.m. He uh, produced that, and it was uh, his concept, and it was uh, a hell of a story. I enjoyed the, I enjoyed it a lot, and I didn't know about Andre, and as a guy who's involved in wrestling uh, in a peripheral way. Uh, I needed to know more about Andre the Giant, so uh, it's a pretty touching uh, documentary. So this is me talking to Bill Simmons. I don't really do podcasts. T- t- turn it so face this That's good. Yeah, okay. that's better. Can yeah. you see me? All right. Yeah. Uh, you don't really do podcasts. I don't. <laughs> Why not? How come you're not we, part of a... We the, should talk about this on the uh, on the pod. Oh, we've been on the we've been on. Going oh, you've been taking this. Yeah. Oh, all right. <laughs> um, I, I don't know how you do it. But that's how I, I didn't do. It how it. We started. Yeah, uh, well, I just turned it on. You never know what's going to come up. No, I don't. Sorry I, about the noise. I'm I'm trying to make tea here. I've got the last vestige of the kitchen I once had in there. Is <laughs> this this boiling pot boiler? Yeah. The cool thing about this garage
1: is it feels like I could be in any state in America.
0: Yeah, it's... We we uh, could easily
1: be in Minnesota,
0: like on some ice fishing lake or something. Sure, man. If that's what it takes, to, if you need to picture that, to make this feel more comfortable being a UFO. UFO. Yeah, we could be anywhere. It is a classic sort of a a type of... I'm wary to call it a man cave, but it is a type of sort of a post-hippie man cave.
1: I am since the last since you were in my office. I'm really happy with my poster game. I did I did some poster upgrades. Oh, I, I'm really happy with how the symmetry of how they're arranged. We're just get? really proud of it. Ah, you I get A get? couple good ones. Yeah, an old Springsteen, 1975 Capitol Records. Are you big? Run poster. Are you a
0: big Springsteen guy?
1: I I really was. Did I'm we not, talk
0: about that? We on yours? We didn't talk about a lot of stuff. I left. We have a lot lot left on the. But on did the, you did you end my Springsteen? Steam? Did you listen to my I did. Spring? And how was that for as a Springsteen fan? For you? It's it's You can weird. be honest. You can be honest.
1: Now, for me it's weird to hear Bruce talk about himself because his <laughs> songs are so personal. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's almost like you partly think you know right all the answers, but and then he has answers that you don't think he's gonna have and it's disorienting. It's almost like if I heard my wife on your podcast and she was telling you things that I didn't know and I almost like take it personally.
0: That would happen, you know.
1: It probably would. She's, I, she's very excited that I came here. They, it,
0: it's happened with other people before, like brothers of people, yeah. spouses of people. Oh, yeah. People who have known people for 30 years. Like I didn't know that. Yeah. Because there are weird little details about your life that why, you know, even if it's your spouse, I mean, how's it going to come up? He's very transparent
1: and like the Bruce, the, the live, the three set, the three album box set or whatever it was that came out in the mid 80s. Yeah, I like that one. And it's got a couple of those stories that he tells. He's like, when right. I was growing up, my dad. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and basically the theme of everyone is his dad hated him. <laughs> But then, yeah, it would take a car accident or him not getting into Vietnam for his dad to actually
0: uh, realize so nice. that he's
1: okay for five minutes yeah, and you just feel like crushed for the guy.
0: Well, yeah, what struck me about him was just like how hard he is on himself yeah and you know, and, and how dark it kind of got I, I you know and I'm not a, a fanatic for him, but uh, but I felt Like I look back at it as one of the great events of my podcast. Oh yeah, going out there and just being around him. But I'm I'm not like a guy who's I've never seen him live really. I've never been fanatic, but that helps. You know what I mean? And I read part of the book, but like when you're around him, you're like, there's a weight to him. You know, it's real. I saw he was the second concert I ever
1: went to. Yeah, and the first one I went to was Bob Seger, who also was long. Oh yeah, that was 1980, and the second one was Bruce, and he kept playing encore's for four hours. yeah, it was the stereotype, but it really was the case of like we were at like the three and a half hour mark, and he's like coming out again. Where'd and you the, see the, him? It was in Hartford. I think it was the Hartford Civic Center. Yeah. And the crowd was like, "Oh my god! What? Oh, all right, two more. All right." <laughs> he just he, was like, he, <laughs> he was wore out, out, the, last cr- in
0: the crowd. He wore out the crowd. <laughs> it was pretty great. So I watched the um, Andre the Giant thing last night. You did? They sent yeah. it to you? Yeah. Oh, cool. I watched it. So. Let me understand something. Yeah. Because like, you know, being not as sports oriented at all, you know, they're, like, they're, I'm all, I, I think you probably are responsible in some way for, uh, for sports casters and sports radio now to be uh, more broad based. I think that you, because of what you've done, like now when you, like if you're on the road or something and they're sending you to a radio show, yeah. they're like, it's sports, but they don't, do, they don't talk about sports. I think that's your fault. <laughs> I'll take it. It's a, <laughs> I'll like, take it as a compliment. Well, you know, you kind of reconfigured what a sports guy can do in yeah. a public medium. Yeah. Because I've done a lot of sports. Because you walk in, you're like, they look like sports guys, but they're like, hey, what's up? You know, let's just talk about whatever. Right. So, I don't think that happened before you. No, I I came at a really weird
1: time. I was, it was very early on in the internet. I mean, super early. Well, I know, but that's like that. Like, And yeah. it was just the people, the way they wrote and talked about sports, it was one way. It was like everybody had their two newspapers or their one newspaper in the local town. Yeah. USA Today. Right. And then sports radio was just starting to really come into its own, but not really. But it was- And, it and thought, that was it. it was everybody did it the same way. Right. It just complete, like, shop talk. Yeah, my whole thing was, you know, I was on my own for four years just- Writing for this site that I had created and trying to figure out what worked and didn't work.
0: What the, when you were on AOL? When I was in
1: Boston. Yeah. Well, and, let's go
0: back. So, and yeah. then I wanted to start with Andre because, you know, I I it was an interesting choice because I know you did that. You sort of masterminded the thirty and thirty on ESPN, 30, and 30, yeah, and that like I I have to assume that. You were gone by the time they did o j made in America, right? I was in there for the early stages of it actually because that seems to be the sort of like the the this the what you were headed towards, yeah,
1: and we knew it at the time. We felt like after we had done volume two and gotten that going, and I remember the guy that I created with Connor shell we we're, yeah. were driving back. We we were at some million dollar arm of so some you're, screening,
0: but you're still working it. Yes, st- oh yeah, this yeah. was
1: like 2013. Like, yeah, that's when they t- and, started uh,
0: making the OJ doc.
1: That was when we were thinking about it. Oh. And the big thing for us was we we had at this point with Thirty for Thirty where everybody just liked it. Yeah, and it wasn't always great. Yeah, and you kind of know that. And people another oh, no, great one, and we're like, yeah, that was like a B minus. Like, <laughs> oh,
0: really? And so some just, of them didn't work in your mind.
1: No, nah, it's, you know, it's like anything else. You have yeah. some great ones, you have some right, good ones, sure. and you have some-
0: But the premise was you would do sports, like real documentaries, and use real filmmakers.
1: You use real filmmakers, but more importantly, use stuff, Do concentrate on stuff that had happened in the last, like, 25, 30 years. Uh-huh. That was the big inefficiency when we launched it, which was HBO's doing Joe Lewis and Vince Lombardi and <laughs> yeah. all these old guys, and right. it was like, we want to do the Fab Five, mm-hmm. and- But when by the time the OJ thing we started, you got to move it all up to date
0: because you're almost an old guy.
1: Yeah. Well, (laughs) it's funny is we had we had wanted to do OJ in the first series, and it was it was still too close, and it was like for you can't do that story in an hour. So what we ended up doing was, uh, and you can't do
0: it just about sports. No. So we ended up yeah, doing. Be, if you did a documentary just covering OJ's sports career, a new one, that would have been insane. W- th- sort yeah, of people would have been like,
1: what is this? Yeah, <laughs> what what about the do? part where he murdered people? <laughs> 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 but we, so we did a whole thing about the day of the car chase. Yeah, And it was an hour and it was all the different things that happened on this day. And yeah. that was in the first volume. That was really all that we could have done with that story. But then after five years, it's like, hey, how do we blow this out? And well, the initial idea was three parts, five hours.
0: Oh, and then it turned into what, 10 parts? No, it was
1: five parts. He, Ezra probably ended up at seven hours, but he took it. I mean, I, I was there when he sent us the treatment and then we pushed it to- You hired out. Ezra? Yeah, because Ezra had worked for us on the uh, Big East. He did the Big East documentary. Yeah. He, he's just really talented.
0: He's great. I talked to him about yeah. the OJ thing. I still
1: have his treatment. It was two paragraphs. Oh, really? It was like three parts, five hours. This is what I want to do. And it was like, yeah, okay.
0: This is what I want to do. I want to take on race in America going back to, to the beginning. Well, it was, it was race. It was celebrity. celebrity it was yeah. uh, sports. Yeah. And then it was also a legal
1: case. And he, you know, initially, the, the first multi-part one we wanted to do was Tyson. Yeah. And I I was always fascinated with Tyson week, like shark week. Yeah. It was like Tyson week, Monday, and just like tell it that way. (laughs) Yeah. And by the time we actually got around to seriously thinking about it, he he was, like, too available and too... Yeah, he's out
0: there. He was yeah. doing
1: Broadway plays, writing sure. books, and it just didn't make sense. He used to and hang around at he,
0: a cigar place across from the comedy store on Sunset. Yeah. Just like, yeah, he's available. It
1: just seemed like we... It just didn't seem that special as it right. did in, like, 2009 or right. 2010. Right. And that's when...
0: You when know, people's started started opinions of him were rightfully tainted, but there were still a lot of people that had normalized him. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: But, I mean, I mean, what Ezra did with the OJ thing... I think it's the best documentary ever, and I also think like it's really hard to follow that. And I, I you know, I'm friends with him, and I, I'm waiting to see what he does next. Ezra, and he's so smart; he understands like whatever he does comes under the shadow of sure. this amazing achievement, and that's really paralyzing sometimes.
0: But you weren't there for the follow through of it. I mean, I
1: wasn't. I was there from when we got a green when he went off and started working on it. But the thing with the good thing about people like Ezra is they just kinda go off. If somebody's really good at doing a documentary yeah. and Jason Hare for Andre, the same thing. They just kind of disappear. Uh-huh. And it's almost like they go into witness protection and they dive into the footage, they read everything. Yeah. They live and breathe it and they become obsessed with it. And that's I think that goes for a lot of things, but yeah. especially documentaries. The good ones are like we did, we had this problem with the first volume of 30 for 30 where we do certain people yeah and it was just part of one of seven things they were doing right it's not gonna work
0: no. it's gotta be like all this in. is
1: all i am doing all the time yeah because
0: and it's a solo journey because so much of it is found footage and organization and and creating a narrative interviews and who and do, and do i interview yeah, who's interviews. good yeah but
1: I, i'm sure it's the same thing when you do a stand-up special it's like you can't do a stand up special is one of the seven things you're doing. Like you're all in, you're testing material for weeks and weeks, sure. you're writing constantly. Well, at
0: night, you know. I mean, you know, you're, you're sort of yeah, you can do other things. It's not as all because I don't I don't have to book out a few hours during the day. Yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> but <laughs> it's it's <laughs> the number one thing in your mind. Oh yeah. Yeah, I'm book out a few hours a day to talk to myself. <laughs> <laughs> kind of get on the mics with me and figure out where I'm at. Yeah, work some material. It's really hard to do a documentary because I, I love it. I don't what watch you, enough of them. Yeah, well,
1: and it's frustrating because I did so many that I can watch them now, know exactly what's right,
0: what's wrong, what they should have done. Where the and turn happens, where like, oh, it's getting sad now. Well,
1: it's a, now the, I don't the,
0: know what to think. That well, moment, true. No, yeah, but
1: yeah. It, the biggest mistake people make is they keep too much. Yeah, and. People, the directors fall in love with what they did.
0: So, first of all, did you were you pissed off that you didn't get to follow through, be there for the whole OJ thing, or did that you left him in the middle of it? No, ESPN. No, it was already on no. side.
1: I was not pissed off about that
0: because it was Ezra's thing. I mean, yeah.
1: our job was to get the series to the point where we could do something like that, right? And to recognize somebody who's as talented as him and to give them the chance to do it. And that was the last so, of
0: you and ESPN.
1: Yeah, pretty much. But when I was leaving, he was working. I, I mean, I had heard he'd we'd heard di- a couple different stories from when he was yeah. kind of preparing it and doing the interviews and stuff. Yeah. But then I knew. I mean, I knew it was going to be really good. I didn't realize it was going to be great. <laughs> yeah. Anybody who realized it was going to be or claims they thought it was going to be that good is is lying. And yeah, I, it was the it was Ezra going from like one level of his career to yeah. another level, which happens. Right usually, I think he. I don't think he's maybe in the his late thirties or mid thirties. Oh, is or there a, like is
0: that. there actually a, a chart where the, I don't know the age syncs just, up? And-
1: <laughs> I think he had done enough projects that right. it was like because I was
0: way late on that chart. Yeah, yeah but, right.
1: I think both of us were
0: <laughs> just starting um, to tip up now. There,
1: no, but I think you hit a point where you kind of you kind of know what you're doing.
0: Yeah, right, and and I think also he had that like he must have had that moment with himself where he knew it was getting bigger and he could manage it and it was worth uh you know following it yeah like you know like you know once it started it must have just started to open up to him at some point where he's like this is all layering up and i'm covering all this stuff and there's no reason to stop there's no reason right
1: the other cool thing is it's it's the best documentary subject i think you could really ever do Mm -hmm. for at least for sports because it wasn't really about sports the bad thing is I think it's convinced a lot of people like, oh, what's the, you should do a, uh, this will be like the OJ thing. And it's like, that. Yeah. this was like a special topic yeah. that yeah. hit so many different things and went so many directions. You can't replicate
0: this. It always happens with executives. They're like, they just, they so easily go like, no, just do that. Yeah. You know, like, like hey, make it four hours. Yeah. OJ was four hours. Like, that was great. Guess what? Documentary should not be four hours. <laughs> no, and was- this was an exception. But so the Andre the Giant thing, this was like something you've been working towards for a long time. Yeah, when when we came up with thirty for thirty, it was on the original list, and it just the
1: WWE wasn't ready to outsource anything, especially him, because he's one of the biggest stars they ever had.
0: But this is interesting because so now you're kind of doing it at HBO, who you have like a big overall deal with of yep. some kind, and this is your first documentary with them. It was one of the, in
1: 2015. We kind of it was the first one I wanted to push
0: HBO for. Sports, and this yep. is a wrestling show.
1: Yeah, but it's. It's
0: not really about wrestling. It's about this. It's about a giant guy. No,
1: it is. But I, right, but it's about gonna, the form. who knows is going
0: to die. Yeah. No, I get that. Yeah. But the form is wrestling. It's not football. Yeah. It's not basketball. It's not you know soccer. It's not like. And I'm not saying I, I'm certainly no longer in a position to say that wrestling is not a legitimate sport. Really, I know. Or the, <laughs> but people you know, people get mad. No, but I'm, I'm on a wrestling show, so I've had to that learn. Too. Uh, you know, and I certainly have respect for the form, but it's fundamentally about, you know, uh, a, 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 a spectacle, an entertainment. Right. But so it didn't really matter. To, you, you still, as a sports guy, were like, it's important. Andre's important.
1: Yeah, because I felt like when I was growing up, he was one of the biggest stars we had. But were you a
0: wrestling kid, obviously?
1: I was, I got into it probably when I was around 10. 10? I was the only child, so I was ready to get into anything. What year was it? So late, we're talking like 79, 80, somewhere in there. I remember Andre Killer Khan broke his ankle. Were you a a latchkey kid or did you have people around? What is a latchkey kid? Like by yourself in the house? I I was there in the (laughs) days, I really was. It was a different era, I used to walk home from school. Right. Let myself in. What what state are we talking about now?
0: Massachusetts. Like what town? It was uh, Brookline Where in Brookline? Chestnut Hill Oh, okay Up off Route 9 Yeah Uh-huh Yeah But it was a different air. You walked home from school and Yeah, you, like and how you, old are you? I'm 48 now I'm 54 All right yeah. So right, yeah You didn't have to be afraid Sometimes it's snow You walk home in the snow you We had the home.
1: blizzard It was just We were out Blizzard is 78 You just go out And yeah, you your parents see you In eight hours <laughs> Yeah We used to go to the dump And look for Sports Illustrated And Playboys And Did you find them? Yeah, sometimes, it, sometimes. Where was the
0: dump in Chestnut Hill? The Brookline Hill? dump. It the was, was a Brookline long walk. Dump. Yeah, you Whatever the friends? Chestnut Hill dump
1: was. Yeah, we were going. So what were it was you? Like, Let's well, go find some stuff.
0: What were you doing in the in? The, uh, you were the only non-Jew in a world of Jews up there.
1: I I actually, <laughs> I will say I went to a lot of bar mitzvahs right. in the seventh grade and <laughs> did not really fully understand it. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, it was a different time. Your, your parents Hill left Mall. you alone. Oh, the Chestnut Hill Mall was incredible.
0: Hmm. They had a toy
1: and hobby. They sold. Sold the hockey cards and the basketball cards.
0: Oh, that was your place? Yeah. For my buddy,
1: my best friend, Reese, I've written about this. We used to steal change from the fountain yeah. to buy cards. Oh, really? So we would hold each other. In. I think I was taller than him, so he would hold me and we'd reach in and grab quarters uh-huh. and then go, go buy <laughs> hockey cards. But yeah, those were the days, man. Now it's like you can't. Your kid's going anywhere, and and it's like you have Obama.
0: Yeah, you got you so got how, full security.
1: How's Zoe getting to school? Yeah, how, we, 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 your grandmother's taking her, and then they're picking her up at three fifteen. How
0: far is the school though? Yeah, it's like twenty minutes. Well, like you like in Chestnut Hill, you could probably walk it, right? We, we, yeah, it we, not we a big deal. There's a lot more walking. Yeah, I remember that. And it was fun because you'd have your friends, and every like sometimes you'd just walk. Yeah, and just never, it just keep going.
1: There was more playing. It yeah. would be
0: like, oh, well, there's no the there's, guy in
1: the next street. He's, there's, yeah. there's him, and he's got his two brothers. Let's go over and play hockey all day. And that's and now I think it's moved to more toward uh, video games, Instagram. Yeah, they can isolated, relate to people that've isolated. seen them.
0: Yeah, a kind of can they. I mean, but in are, a lot it, of ways, yeah. But you don't get the feeling, you don't get to the sense their their vulnerabilities, their the humanity of the person. You know, the competitive like the competitive nature when you're doing a, an actual game is different right. than a, vi- a video game. I agree. You know, when you're bullying somebody, you, you know, you, bully, yeah. you, you Bullying's stop. Bullying's harder, you harder and easier. Well, it's easier now because you don't see the guy about to cry. Right. You know, back when you were just a shitty bully as a kid, you're like, oh, no, he's about to cry. Oh, hey, buddy, hey, I'm oh, sorry. No. Hey, Ben. <laughs> yeah, the uh, <laughs> the the
1: Instagram- I was a
0: bully and I've been bullied. I want to say I've done both sides I
1: think everybody's that. been on both sides of it. The Instagram, that whole world is really- I have a 12-year-old daughter, a 10-year-old son, so- yeah watching how they interact and fortunately my kids both have people skills but um just the little games with instagram is really crazy i have no idea like with the the, uh with the with the girls and like if somebody's not in the group picture because they all went to the mall their feelings are hurt it's like it's this whole more elaborate way to hurt other people's feelings that Uh, you really have to be careful of
0: i can't i can't imagine what it's like to to have kids and have to explain to them some, you know, something.
1: I will say that I had me on my podcast the other day and we were talking Chuck. about the Parkland kids. yeah, yeah. And how, how sophisticated they are. Yeah, very. With, they're kind of children of social media who are actually the first ones that understand how to harness its powers and- you know mobilize and, and, yeah and
0: also want to do that organize yeah. you know i don't know yeah it's kind of fascinating cuz this assumption that millennials are just these useless self involved they're not idiots. they're really
1: smart i have a lot of them that work for me they work really hard and they're really smart and they're just different than the
0: generation that came before but, them but
1: uh, your generation was different than your sure. parents and
0: yeah these but this is what happens right but the the fact that they you know they organized in real time with each other to do something politically relevant uh, is sort it was sort of like oh maybe there is hope there's this glimmer that maybe there is hope. I, but, and also the way they handle trolling and stuff where yeah, like, it's the first yeah.
1: generation, somebody comes at them and they'll just cut the person's knees off, almost like a comic at the comedy <laughs> store right, where, they right. heck, where they're like, oh, you're going to heckle
0: me? Yeah, Boom, and, the, and no they effect. raise the stakes, yeah. Yeah, my, I'm, I'm an ingen- I am I'm can't handle the trolling. I'm too sensitive for it. Like, <laughs> right. I, I really am. Like, I really like, you know, it's, if I'm- So on, you get heckled even now and it's- oh, Heckling's different. If I'm on stage, I can eviscerate somebody. Yeah. But like just the sort of anonymous- nobody right you know on twitter you know taking you know because you can't really defend yourself because you're going to get into a clusterfuck right you know that it's not they've already won just by you reading it yeah yeah as soon as you respond it's over but in a club you know you get a laugh or you just knock them out it's you know it's different different dynamic yeah so how long
1: long does it take to learn how to cut their knees out some guys
0: don't uh don't do it at all you know some guys don't you know it's not important to them to uh to sort of uh, nurture that skill, I, I I think it's important. I did it innately to because you know crowd work is fun. It yeah. can be funny, and you have to be able to defend yourself. But some some comics are like God, it just they they won't engage with it. I'm always amazed, and it's something like obviously I worked with Kimmel a long time ago. When, he can handle himself when we were
1: launching the show. Yeah. yeah, and he could, but it took him I don't know how many years in Act One to learn what to do when a joke didn't work which was Carson's like greatest skill. Right. Carson was just always- Just that weird beat. Yeah, He was the funniest when a joke failed. Yeah. That's when it became funny because yeah. he, he rode with whatever and he made fun of the audience. Yeah. And Kimmel, it took a while- Oh, yeah? Just to get the reps of, oh, that didn't work the way I thought and they reacted this <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, I'm yeah, going to yeah, twist yeah. this and still make it and still save it. And, he, and now he's the best at it. Well- Of all I, those guys.
0: Yeah, I think he's very good because he can sort of really handle like- um, uh trolls you know what i mean like he like he likes online and stuff he's very good at handling trolls yeah like because they they kind of creep me out yeah trolls he, he he is
1: very aggressive yeah. with all of it which i think is an interesting way to play it but and, it's yeah, i think for him and also time. he's very
0: emotional now he's sort of grounded in an emotional place and he's being very honest so let's go back chestnut hill yeah. you're a uh a, uh a, a, like a, a an only child yeah so where's your mom and dad? I think
1: he said only child, like I was like in the, like a weirdo,
0: yeah, in the like yeah. army or something. Well, they kind of they kind of freaked me out a little bit because I always assume I'm freaked out by only children. Yeah, why well, I, I always assume that like, and I'm always proven wrong that there's uh, an, an inordinate amount of pressure on the only child, you know, in a sort of subverted way from the parents because you're the only shot they have like
1: yeah i think that's part of it and i think that there's a little narcissism that kicks in because kind of the world revolves around you to some degree yeah and it's i i just watch like what my daughter and my son like watching them interact I think yeah it's so important that you kind of learn you have to learn it's it sounds like a cliche but you learn how to share yeah you learn you learn how to get your feelings hurt yeah like they're super mean to each other and then it's fine and they just you develop kind of a thick skin and you didn't well, you're an only child, like it, every everything is new and especially like back then you don't have the internet or anything like that and you're you're learning how to interact with people either at school, family functions or when you're out or just from like TV. Yeah. And shit like that and like TV had a huge impact on kind of every thought I had growing up cause I watched a lot of TV and I felt like those characters were my friends, you know? And your parents, where were your folks? My parents, they got divorced when I was nine, and eventually, like two two years later, my mom moved to Connecticut. Yeah. So I lived with my dad for a couple more years. What did he it was do? was like Kramer versus Kramer. Uh-huh. Uh, he worked in a school system. He eventually became a superintendent for a long time.
0: Oh, yeah? So Main guy? Overseeing yeah. Overseeing the whole system? Yeah. Massachusetts? Was superintendent. was he a, Not
1: just an intended, a superintendent.
0: Was he a Massachusetts guy? Yeah, he was. Did well, you talk he talk like one?
1: He's been there almost 50 years now. Yeah, it's funny. He's got this... He's, he can't say certain letters anymore, which is like a Boston thing. Like yeah. L's and R's are really tough. Ah. It's just the L's are gone. Like we've had. Ah. Like the Portland L's. has this guy Damien Lillard, and my yeah. dad won't even try to say his name. He just calls him like Dame. Yeah. The guy yeah. in Portland, Dame yeah. Lillard's like, no
0: chance. Both you folks are around still? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So, all right. So, you, so you're in Massachusetts for a little while, and then your mom takes you to Connecticut. How old are you? Yeah. So I go there in
1: eighth grade, which oh. was tough. Going back and forth every other weekend to see my dad in Boston on the Still train. Going back, yeah, by the yourself. PM track, yep. So you could do that by the New York Post. Yeah, I have a book. Yeah, I'd get some roast beef sub. Take the train, and I'd try to get there in time for whatever the Friday night Celtic game was because Larry Bird was playing back then. So, so we had season tickets. So I was like, oh, so a lot of it plan. was like, oh yeah, I'll go back this weekend. Then Friday game, Sunday game, I'll get to see two games.
0: That was and the then. Plan. Eventually,
1: I was able to drive when you know, back then it was sixteen. What is it now? It's I don't know. I,
0: I was 15 in New Mexico. It was yeah. 15. So when well, I got my
1: license, I could just zoom back and forth and go back for games. From Hartford like to? It was like, it was, it was uh Stanford. Two and a half hours. Stanford. See, two and a half, which I always tried to make in two and probably should have died.
0: Yeah. At some point. Yeah. I yeah, I, I, I drove those roads so much. I the miss Marin, New one, man like,
1: The Marin was like, pole. Yeah. You remember that video game pole position? It yeah, was like, yeah, yeah, tugging yeah. the turns. Oh yeah. Cause that yeah. was the
0: quickest way. Yeah. So all right, so so you're running back and forth, you're taking the train by yourself and then like so it's all sports with you all the time?
1: Yeah, I love to write. So I was always um I love sports and I like to write and eventually it just kinda collated when I was in college.
0: Yeah, you started I, what you like. I you started
1: I had a, I had a column the senior year the last year I was you go in to high college? school. I went to Holy Cross in Worcester. 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 Is, is that the a changing good school their mascot? It is a good school. Um but when I went there it was very sports heavy, and they still had. This is they were kind of weeding out the scholarships as I was there. But when I was there, it was like it was very sports, and there was like a lot of the guys there were guys who were good in high school, and there was a big intramural scene. Yeah, it was just different than
0: what uh, what why that school you applied to that you got a scholarship? my dad went there. Oh, he did. Yeah, so you were a legacy. My
1: dad and two uncles, uh-huh. and uh, I really wanted to go to Georgetown. I didn't get in. Oh. Yeah. So this is the one you got in. Every time I hire somebody from Georgetown, I always get excited. I'm like yeah, I hired a Georgetown person. <laughs> I just hired somebody with the George. Like, yeah, yeah. what was it about? Look Georgetown? at me now. i right? yeah. just
0: Georgetown. I'm now I'm. Yeah. I'm They're
1: working yeah, for me. I got a Georgetown person. Yeah. no it's it's tough though. I wanted to go there because they had great basketball, and I liked Washington. Yeah. And I just kind of got my heart set on it. Washington,
0: and, in terms of the the city
1: or the yeah the city just seemed were cool. You it seemed in like politics. Boston. No, not at all. Yeah. You I actually just when, when I went to college, I wanted to be. It's kind of like Boston. I, I wanted to be a sports agent. Oh really? I did. Uh, I my first major I think was. I don't remember if I settled on it, but I ended up doing poli sci. Yeah. Yeah, that's I. That was my first. One. Did you? Uh, so
0: you didn't do well in high school. You did all right. Not good. Nah, up Was to one of those like high SATs, but didn't have good study
1: habits. Person.
0: Yeah, smart so, but not motivated. Did you get the teachers tell your parents that? Yeah, yeah. he's a.
1: Gifted writer. I just wish she worked harder. Yeah. There's a lot of that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it would be nice to be turned to sit on time. <laughs> um, yeah. So in college, it all kind of fell into place because I you started, didn't write.
0: What did you write for the paper in high school?
1: I did the last couple of years, but it was different. I didn't know what I was doing in college. It was like I want. I, I saw the column I wanted. I went in. I badgered the guy to let me try. I wrote the first issue of the first year. Gave me a column. It was called the Ramblings. Yeah. And I wrote that one, and it was good. And from that point on, I never missed uh, all four years. I wrote, I had a column every time. And I used to, on Fridays... Was it weekly or daily? It was weekly. The newspaper came out on Fridays and I would go to the cafeteria to get food on Fridays and I would see people reading it. I was like, yeah! Yeah. You know, (laughs) it's just, it's like anything else. You're like, you know, when you're good at something, you really... When you feel, especially like somebody like me, I'm an only child. I don't know what the hell's going on. I'm like, I know I'm good at this. Yeah, and you just kind of that's it, like I want to do this. And did you, you get, get in up right? in it. It's
0: sort of it's sort of like the Andre story. You, like, what else is he going <laughs> to he do? He's a giant. What yeah. else are you going to do? Yeah, it is a little like that.
1: Yeah, it it wasn't a huge campus, but it definitely started to have an impact. And I started feuding with the guy who ran the uh, college. It was named Father Brooks. Yeah, so Catholic. I was, guy. I was calling him Father Crooks in my column. And uh, and who was the other guy? Oh, it was like Father Markey. I was calling him Father Malarkey because yeah. they were they were getting rid of scholarships. I was calling them Father Crooks and Father Malarkey. So you're starting shit. I was starting shit, and I got called in once, and I was like, "This is good. I, this is I, let me get paid for this." The power
0: of journalism. Yeah,
1: it was good though. It was fun, and I, at some point, I just realized I think I could do this and get paid for it.
0: But taking a position like those, seem like that you were—you taking a position politically on campus? Were you? Were you actually other than just calling them names? Were you?
1: Yeah, it was. It was a. It was, back then when you wrote sports columns. You. Did, it was a lot more abstract, and you would have more fun with it. Now it's very like very first person. Here are my feelings. Sure. Here's my take. But didn't you do that? Back then, <laughs> I did some of that. But back then, you part of the art of writing the column was to try to mess around with it and come yeah. up. Yeah try to say what you were saying not in the way people would think you were going to say it so yeah. I like created characters for them and did that whole thing but you seem to
0: like to start shit
1: yeah sometimes i like to, i would like to start shit when it's justified
0: right like
1: I, I, I to me it's like there's two types of people who do this you know, especially now, it's the people that start shit just to start shit. Right. And I think a lot of local sports radio hosts are like that. Yeah. But I think when you start shit, when you if you really believe what you're saying, it's a little different. And yeah. I always try to, whenever I'm writing or talking on podcasts, it's to me it's got to be genuine. It's and it's always how I feel. I might be wrong. I might not have all the facts that I needed when I made the assessment.
0: Right. But I genuinely feel that way. So you started your so your style started to unfold in in college or not quite yet? No, than-
1: in college it did because I, I was trying to write a little bit from the fan perspective and 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 meld that with some other things. That Who did you did.
0: like reading, like journalistic? It was
1: all kinds of people, but this Hunter S. So when I was in Boston, they had these. We just had randomly had a couple of awesome sports columnists, Ray Fitzgerald and uh, Lee uh uh-huh. and. They did not write the typical sports column. Who were they writing for? What paper? They wrote for the Boston Globe. Yeah. And the columns that they wrote were basically, you know, thoughtful, a little bit from the fans' perspective. They weren't stuff like, Carlton Fisk is a coward and needs to go. Like, they didn't write that stuff. (laughs) And so it was a little bit of that. It was other, Roger Angel and the New Yorker, the way he wrote from the fans' perspective was a big influence. And I don't know if you ever read a book. William Goldman wrote a sports book with Mike Lupica. Uh-uh. William Goldman's the famous screenwriter, yeah. yeah, and he wrote from the fan side, and Lupica wrote from the reporter side, and it was about this year in New York sports. And Goldman's fan columns, I basically just started ripping off like that style in college. Like I was like, "That's that should work as a column."
0: Yeah, and no um, one was doing that though. Nobody was, really, not really. It and was then, just part of an experimental book in a way.
1: Yeah, and then the other thing, I I was sprinkling in a lot of pop culture because yeah, it was working for Dennis Miller.
0: Yeah, so Dennis Miller was the Weekend Update
1: guy. Yeah and i would watch the weekend update and he would have like just these random obscure pop culture reference sure. jokes that yeah. i just thought were like the funniest things of all time yeah. you know i remember there was that one about Blah, blah, blah. It's like playing
0: Stratego with the Lander sisters. And I was like, yeah.
1: I get that. That's a great show. Yeah, right. You so I was trying in on it. Yeah, yeah. work those in.
0: You still feel like you had to be a little smarter than the average knob to get them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the thing about Dennis, you know, he wasn't necessarily my cup of tea, but you had to be impressed with the uh, lyricism and how many references he could get in. And then sometimes you're like, I don't even know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> I got to go look that up. I got to learn something to do. Well,
1: and then when somebody gets it, it's a. Re- I remember. I used to do this one-liner thing. Yeah. That it was basically, it was a combo of one-liners, which now would basically be, I guess, Twitter. You wouldn't even need to do it. Yeah. And one of the lines was about the three-part Hawaii Brady Bunch episode when...
0: <laughs> the um, mask. When, when Vincent, he found the the weird... Yeah, the magical... Tiki guy,
1: Vincent Price kept yeah. the guy, kids in a cave. Yeah. He kind of kidnapped them. Right. And then Mr. Brady and the Bradys, they found yeah. the kids, they freed the kids, and then they kind of felt bad and they invited yeah. Yeah. Vincent Price to the luau. Right. And... I was just like, why the fuck did they invite him to Luau? Like, he should be in jail. He kidnapped their kids. So I did a throwaway line in that, and then at a party that night, a couple people were like Vince Price, man, that was some good shit. You know, and I was like, oh, good, somebody got it. So, so you,
0: you just kind of don't know. So you kind of like you you, you like the uh, the attention, and but you were you, but also you you land in jokes. Yeah, yeah, you don't know what's working because. The, the stuff that
1: really landed was the actual columns and like if you took a take on something and you read about Mike Tyson or right. the, uh, what Holy Cross was doing in their sports or whatever. But the, the little throwaway lines, people I always like noticed them. people would mention those. And then when I finally- The grabbers. Yeah. yeah and then when yeah. I finally had my own website a few years later, I started- One of the things I knew I wanted to do is a mailbag, yeah. which I hadn't really seen done successfully that we, as a sports column. And it was completely 100%
0: ripped off from viewer mail. But it was email at that time. Yeah, it was like- At the very beginning. It was like,
1: send me, yeah, early email. I was writing for an AOL only site and it was- you know, here's my AOL address, send me an email. I might answer it in my mailbag. Right. But it was ripped off from Letterman. Sure, I, but,
0: they, but Letterman didn't invent that. No, yeah.
1: but I grew up as a kid in the 80s. I revered Letterman sure. and sent him viewer mail things and watched every Thursday night hoping
0: he would pick my. Did he never ever did. pick one? Never, never did. But so, okay, so you do undergraduate at Holy Cross and you're studying politi- political science. Yeah, poli sci. But you're just doing mostly you're preoccupied with writing. You do okay in college? I finished with
1: a 3-0, which was a miracle. It's pretty good. I had a 2-5 after freshman year, and my dad
0: Lost wasn't, it. wasn't Did you get along
1: good. with him? With my dad? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. That's good. Yeah, he's my buddy. I actually made him, as my as my column evolved, he became a character in the columns, pretty oh, much. Yeah. And it did was he like, like that? I think he did, actually. Yeah. I, think, I think he kind of enjoys it now, especially because he's retired. I have him on my podcast sometimes. Yeah. He's I, like stereotypical old crusty boston fan who's like strangely hopeful but s- upset about yeah. stuff and
0: <laughs> yeah yeah stuff. i have my dad on too but it doesn't always go it depends where he's at emotionally
1: it's tough because you're always going to enjoy your parents more than anybody else is going to
0: yeah because my parents are genuinely uh as endearing as they are they're a bit disturbing
1: well that's what the one i want to have on is my mom and she yeah. refuses to come on because her like her her pop culture choices oh yeah Her favorite movie ever is Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which is- That's a weird one. Isn't that weird? My mom's super weird. That's pretty good, though. Yeah, my mom's got a lot of weird hobbies. It's like
0: Soderbergh's first movie. I I know. She's
1: just like, it's the best. But she has a lot of takes, and she would be unbelievable on a podcast, but knows it and refuses to come on. Like what She's kind of my my great white whale right now. Oh really? It's getting my mom on my pocket. What other things is she like into? That's odd. Uh, she's she's obsessed with wine. Right now she's watching um, with wine. She wa- she watches all English shows on like Netflix, yeah. and Amazon, and Hulu, like yeah. anything that's English. But then, weirdly, went to like subtitle shows, and she's like, I just watched this amazing Italian
0: drama. And yeah, I'm just like, what are you talking about? What did she do while I, you were growing up? What was her job? What was her world? She
1: well initially she was she was a teacher slash social yeah. worker. Uh huh. And then eventually just got remarried and became a mom. And then after I went to college, had this whole run as like the manager of a jewelry store in Greenwich, Connecticut. And I don't know. She's had a lot of- Doing that uh, the older lives. lady
0: business thing? Yeah. Well, she wasn't that old at that point. Eventually she got older, right. but yeah. And did that marriage last between her and the next guy? Well, a while. Yeah. 30 years. He's your stepdad? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Huh. Like that guy? Yeah. All right. I like everybody. <laughs> Do you, Come on. You don't. You don't. You can't. Forget. <laughs> <So. laughs> is this where you're trying to get deep on me? No, I'm not trying yeah. to get deep. I'm just curious. No, I just I, I've. I don't i do not come good... from that. I don't come. You know, like you, know, my the stories. Like I know that divorces. My parents get divorced when I was 35, so I didn't have to deal with that. Yeah. You know, other than you know, in, in sort of hindsight or as a grown up, right? You know, but I've talked to a lot of people that it affects them one way or another. Or it doesn't, and or they don't think it does. But step parents, I can't imagine. It must be just weird and difficult. I. Just, I uh,
1: I'm fascinated by kids of divorce, and I have a couple friends now who are divorced yeah. who have kids, and um, i talked to them about it because I was like, here's what happens when you're the kid of a divorce. You can tell them. You can, yeah, I was like, you're gonna play your parents against each other. You're gonna learn how to, you're gonna learn two things. You're gonna learn how to lie to your parents. <laughs> You're gonna learn how to lie to them to make them feel better about things that they you it feels like it might hurt their feelings if yeah. they found out. Yeah. And then you're gonna play them against each other to get what you want. And yeah. it really turns you into like kind of a devious person.
0: But not it's just instinctual.
1: Yeah. Well you're you it's weird to become especially if you're an only child, you're like in the power seat.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course. Which yeah. is ridiculous. It's all about you. I was
1: like nine when my parents got divorced. Yeah. But um yeah, divorce depending on when somebody gets how old you are when your parents get divorced? I think it hits people different ways, but I would say it's between nine and ten is probably the single worst age. And
0: does this advice help your friends that you're finding?
1: A little bit, but a like, yeah, I
0: just can't imagine that. Like when the, the the next guy comes in, like I just can't like because you're already how old were you? That's 12, 13? It's, what I what I've learned looking back
1: is that you just. Being a step parent is the most thankless job there is. It's gotta be the it's worst. It's just brutal. You're just dealing you're dealing with all the shitty parts of having a kid, but you but they don't look like you and they're not half of your DNA. And he
0: didn't have kids? No, he didn't. Oh, he didn't. My God. And then the kid, just like in, in this, it's gotta hate you right out of the gate. Yeah, it's it's tough. <laughs> yeah it's tough. But
1: it's fine. My I had a really good experience. I think yeah. a lot of people probably the com- could not say the same.
0: Yeah, the competitive element of it or like, you know, whatever.
1: Ugh, or like, know. it ends up being like, uh, did you ever see the movie This Boy's Life with Leo and De Niro? Yeah, deal? yeah. You know, like with the oh, De Niro stepdad like she's hitting you with a belt. And, oh,
0: the I worst. mean, that's
1: like, that's your worst case scenario, but...
0: but yeah, where the mother enables it because... Yeah, and well, the mother's like, I, I'm just so happy to be married again, do oh, whatever. Fucking nightmare. So yeah. you didn't have to live through that? No. Oh, I good. <laughs> no, not at all. So, all well. right, so you, you went to graduate school? I did. For journalism? I did. I wanted to... This is a really weird
1: era, and there's only a couple movies that have captured it. Yeah, where like reality bites and singles and kicking and screaming. And yeah, football, but it was like before the internet in the '90s that all these kids graduated from college and they didn't 100 percent know what to do. Like right. the ones that want to be more artistic, and yeah. it's like I think I want to be a stand-up comic. Where do I, I'll go to L.A. and right? I think I want to act. All right, I'll go to L.A. I hope I meet somebody and with writing especially like if you're trying to write about sports yeah you're really your only path was to go to a newspaper right and the thing with newspapers is people are newspapers for 25 30 35 years and you go in and it doesn't it's not a meritocracy and i spent probably three years after graduate school after graduate school working for the boston Herald. then so you it,
0: did two years in graduate school got one ju- year of graduate school masters in journalism in one yeah. year did you yeah. double up or was that just a program it was like an accelerated program oh and then uh so then you go do what you think you need to do, get a job at a newspaper. Yeah,
1: I mean, this is great. I'll have a column in two years. Right, and then the world doesn't work that way. And uh, then you're like, "What the fuck?"
0: And uh, what was it like? I just had just a series of bad breaks. And um, what was it like going in with the old guys? Did you do, did you have heroes there at the time? At the I did Herald? not at
1: that newspaper. The no. Globe had a couple that I probably would have liked more, but um, but you didn't like them. Yeah, it was just rough. It was yeah. like it was like an Aaron Sorkin show. Yeah, it really was. It was like <laughs> just fucking crazy. Yeah, and, uh, and at some point, I just realized that it, it I just was going to go crazy if I stayed because it just would have taken so long, and kind of gave up.
0: And you just got other jobs.
1: And I was like, I'm going to freelance, yeah. and then you don't get a freelance thing for three months, and then it's like oh, I'm going to work. How are you gonna make a living? You sell bartend at this restaurant that's opening up and uh, now waiter and bartender. This is in Charlestown. Charlestown. Yeah. And then um did that and all of a sudden a year goes by and I haven't written anything. And that's when I started my site. because was like, I get But were to you boozing? Were you
0: getting sad? I
1: was. No, I was doing the whole thing you do when you work in a restaurant. You stay up late, yeah. you get to know people from other restaurants. Yeah. You get to know like everybody who's in town. Drinking <laughs> after hours. Oh, after 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 hours. Like you're up till three, three thirty in the morning yeah. smoking cigarettes, yeah. like uh waking up at at doing the schnitz the next doing day. some blow. No, didn't ever do did that. It must bias. have been around. I can't say I'm so innocent with that
0: stuff. Because well, I bet it's a different era too. When I was at restaurants, it was everywhere. It's it, just like the crazy chefs. It probably was, yeah, but yeah. people
1: knew that I was Still traumatized from Len Bias, so maybe nobody didn't offer it for me. <laughs> but I got to say, though, it was a great year. Yeah. And uh, I feel like everybody should work in a restaurant in their 20s for a year. Yeah. It should be almost like going to grad school.
0: Was it like a, a, a home-owned restaurant, not a chain restaurant? Like, some? Yeah,
1: it was like a one. It was this restaurant. It had this probably 16-seat bar in the yeah, front. Yeah. and um, Regulars? Yeah, it was like neighborhood regulars, yeah, yeah. Um yeah. but But uh, but it was cool. And then at some point, you look around. And you're 27. And you're like, I, "Am I really gonna give up writing?" And <laughs> this is
0: it. Yeah. Tried to uh, get it going again. And how'd you do that? I uh, is that when the, AOL came in?
1: Yeah. So they had this site called Digital City. It was all these different little cities. So this is like the beginning of the internet. Yeah, kinda. I had only had AOL. I had only had email for a year. Yeah. So 96, I got email and I had AOL. Yeah. And AOL was like- You didn't, you didn't have like, a choice really. Yeah. I didn't know what else to get. And There's only a couple of other ones, right? In or retrospect, it had been on for people that had, had emails since like 92, 91. I had no idea. I had no idea this whole world existed. But I remember um,
0: when I got it. Yeah. So um, they had these
1: Digital City Boston yeah. things and there was a guy, it was Digital City Boston. Yeah. And there was a guy called the movie guy. Yeah. And he wrote movie reviews and his picture was on there. Yeah. And I was like- oh, I wonder if they want a sports guy. So I just started badgering them and then they finally gave me a column like in the spring of 97. They built like this little site for me. Yeah. I edited it myself, did yeah. all that. And I was Boston sports guys. And it was like, I think it was $50 a week the first three months.
0: And so, and you, it was just, uh, you. How many, how many were you writing? I was trying to write, I think... Th-
1: three times a week maybe and I, but I but I had a whole plan for what I want to do I wanted to do like I knew I wanted to do mailbag I knew I wanted to do like a, a bet 30 best sports movies ever calm yeah I knew I wanted to write about the I do a running dra- diary of watching the NBA draft with my dad yeah this is like time stamped so I had some plans for the first couple months and that were then, actually re-
0: re- repeatable yeah re- refillable it's a, a couple gimmicks that I yeah. thought would
1: work and then some you know just have a little more attitude yeah. and just kind of appeal to younger audience because at the time i just felt like i felt like all the people in boston were not appealing to me right like they were they weren't writing or talking to t- people in their 20s who like sports mm-hmm. and i was like there there has to there's a show or a writer or somebody out there that's going to connect with these people
0: and that was you it
1: was it took a while yeah yeah i mean it was that then it was so early in the internet, like the first year and a half you could only read the column on AOL. Yeah. And, you know, I'd have buddies at work who couldn't read it. So I used to used to copy paste the column and mail them to my buddies. Yeah. And then they would mail it. And then all of a sudden this little mail chain of the column was out. And it was like people and then I, people kept asking to get on the list. And all of a sudden I had this list of like I don't know, seven hundred people or something. And I'm sending it out. And then one day somebody mailed me my own column. Like, you should check this out. And my name <laughs> had been called. I was like, it's my fucking column. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But that's what it was like in the 90s. I mean, it was like the wild, wild west.
0: And When did it start to take form? When did you start to you know, be able to get some metrics on it? So outside of like email. Like the big
1: know. thing for me, it was funny. There are two things. One was that sometimes the AOL main page would run- a thing. So it would go from, I'd be writing from 5,000 people to like 2 million with one column. <laughs> like, whoa, hey, that was cool. Because they put it on front? They put it on the front. And then the other thing was to get a keyword. So I had a keyword sports guy. Yeah. And because I'm such an idiot, I thought the keyword was more important than just like maybe getting sportsguy.com, which would have been a much better way for everybody to get it. Because um, you were still in the AOL thing. Yeah, I was like, yeah. AOL, it's my little universe. But, right. Oh, but by 2000, you could feel things opening up, and the biggest thing that happened in sports was Peter Gamus, who was the biggest baseball writer at the time. He decided to make his column uh, ESPN.com only. It was not available in a newspaper. And you right. had to go to ESPN.com to get it. Yeah. And that was the first time people like my dad and my Uncle Bob were saying. So I, so I type in ESPN.com, and then... And does it pop up what yeah. so you could see everybody like going through the process of it. He was and bringing them into
0: the internet. Yeah,
1: and that's when I was like, this is the internet's gonna happen now. I really <laughs> Because of that guy. Yeah, that and there was there was a trade the I've told this story before, but the Red Sox traded for Pedro Martinez yeah. in like uh in ninety seven, it was the first year I had my site. And the trade happened um probably like in the morning, like ten o'clock range. Yeah. So I wrote a column about it got emails about it, was working on another mailbag for it. And like this whole new cycle happened. And then the globe comes in, you know, 18 hours later, it's like Pedro Martinez has been traded. It's yeah. like, yeah, we're all over here. We've already been talking about it. And that's when I really felt like newspapers were in trouble for the first time. They were just late, right? you know, it was late in like a really embarrassing gap kind of a way. With that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's like, that happened, what do you think? Yeah, And you react. And now the internet is, with Twitter, 20 years later, it's like, this happened, boom, here, my take, and it yeah. just never ends. For better and worse, yeah. for better and worse. But then ESPN hired me, and when they hired me, I knew- Out you know, of AOL. I, yeah, that, yeah. So that was spring 2001. They had me write a couple pieces, a couple uh, guest pieces, which each time I wrote them, they really took off, and I, I knew at that point they were gonna hire
0: me. And was that an exciting day?
1: Yeah. Well, for a couple of reasons. One was I was like 31 at that point. Yeah. And I don't think I had made more than 42000 a year or something. Right. And, and I, I had a girlfriend. I wanted to get engaged. And, um, you know, I was like, wow, this is... And meanwhile i signed like one of the worst contracts ever but that was, but was a job that meant security yeah, it was, it and was old the, the number way. was big but they like owned my
0: ass for three years in all these different ways and i was just so happy to sign anything and what was like at that time so could you tell how big your following was through aol at all you didn't really i could tell
1: i could tell stuff stuff was happening in boston so like the celtics that last the fourth year i had my site yeah I could tell people in the bars and stuff like that, but Re- it was local. referencing you. Yeah, low, no, yeah. just like people, like, hey, are you and 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 people from different teams who work for different teams reaching out to me and things. So I, it was clear something good was happening, right? But then at ESPN, when I joined ESPN, it was it was really the only sports website that mattered. So the, I joined this page that had some great writers like David Halberstam, yeah, Ralph Wiley, Hunter Thompson was right in there at the time, yeah. And all of them were kind of from a different generation. They're all great writers, but they weren't writing for the. Did you read Hunter? I I read all the. I mean, when I was in college, I read all of those. Right? Yeah.
0: Um. But so it's a good first person. Good first person. Oh my god! The Las Vegas. I like some of his features too. Um, Oh, I do too. The short stuff's great. Yeah. Yeah. So, like at that time, like you're writing, you got hired ESPN. You're you're in big company. You're getting popular, right? Yeah, yeah, there was, but, a, but the internet still wasn't in. Like you didn't see it as huge yet. Or? No, to me it was like,
1: I was still looking at it as like a a, a gateway to do something else. Yeah, you know, I, I like always what? wanted to create like a TV series. I'm All like, ah, right. oh, this maybe this will lead. I like, I'll create my own TV series. Right. Or maybe I'll get to write for, you know, Letterman. Right. It, it seemed like a step to do something else. I didn't see the potential of it. You I wanted the to write for Letterman. I just wanted I wanted it didn't seem stable like in 2000 2001 you tell people you wrote for the internet and they were always confused by it they were yeah. like, you write for the internet do you get paid you know and it they, they're asking they, those questions now yeah i think they <laughs> it's come still come full are. circle yeah <laughs> um, but i think uh i don't know it just it just didn't seem like a, the greatest bet well how does how the relationship with Kimmel unfold? cuz i wrote about him he did this roast yeah, he did the shack roast and he was really funny. And I did a column about the shack roast and I wrote something nice about him in it. And then he emailed me and we started talking and we became friends.
0: And did that, he read your column? Yeah, he read it and- um, But I mean, like all the columns, not just the one about him. Yeah, he, yeah. he had
1: been reading my column for a few months and then I mentioned him in the column. He's like, oh, I'm emailing this guy. Yeah. And uh, so we became friendly and we started talking. And right around that same time, it was summer 2002, All of a sudden, ABC was courting him to do that show. Yeah, and he's like, "I'm going to tell you something. You can't tell anybody." And I'm like, "Who the hell am I going to tell? I live in Boston." Yeah. Um. He's like, "I I think I might have a chance to get this late night show on ABC." Yeah. And uh, and I want you to move out to LA and write for it. And at that point, I'd I'd been on the East Coast my whole life, and just my he flew me and my wife out. We went out. Did you marry
0: the girl that you were engaged to? Yeah.
1: Well, she was a little worried about LA because she was East Coast too, and and where's she from? She's from New York. Yeah, but um, we get there and there's this big, there's this uh big feast. He's throwing this charity feast for yeah. like, the Italian thing. Yeah, and we go and it's like I'd already met his executive producer, and we go and we show up. My wife has her little concerns about LA, and there's this one of those big slides. Yeah. that they have at like carnivals. Yeah. And going down the slide is the guy who's gonna executive produce the show and three of the juggies from the man show. Yeah. And they're like, hey! <laughs> and at that point, I was like, I'm done. She, yeah. saw, she I know she saw that and she's never gonna wanna move here. But yeah. we moved here and it was great. I haven't left since. So, but you didn't stay in television.
0: Like, I mean- No, it's... I didn't. I was I worked for him for 18, 18 months. And why'd you, what was the two, this, is your decision to stop?
1: Yeah. I I really loved it. I lo- I love being part of a show. I loved all the people that work for it. I love like launching something. Right. Like I thought it was, I really believed in Jimmy. Like I really genuinely felt like he was special. Yeah. And I felt like he had a chance to do a special show. Right. And I was a child of Letterman and he was too. And I just felt like it'd be so I like cool him. to yeah. help launch a show that becomes something.
0: He's really gotten very good. And he,
1: yeah, he really has. Um, and the first, I don't know, we had we probably like about nine months in, we did this thing with Mike Tyson. Yeah. Where we flew pigeons with him with Jimmy's uncle Frank. And I was the writer assigned to the show and the guy supposed to edit it. Yeah. And uh and we were on this roof in Harlem and I I just felt like I would have rather written about it than done a TV segment.
0: Right. Right.
1: And from that point on I was like I just felt like I had unfinished business with the calm and the internet was getting bigger. And I was like, did I I'm writing for somebody and I'm getting like two jokes on a night or one joke or a couple ideas, and meanwhile, like I could be the lead of this website and really maybe have an impact.
0: And so wait, they'd offered you what? uh,
1: They they were trying to get me to come back from probably about a year in with Jimmy, but we talked. I talked to him about five or six months, and I was telling him, you know, how I was feeling about everything, and we had like a really good. I mean, he's he's just a really good friend of mine, and he wanted. We saw both sides. I didn't want to leave the show yet, but I also felt like I was missing out on this thing that I could see—the internet. Yeah, the internet, and also like having an impact on it. I think most people's reaction was, "Why the fuck did you leave the what you
0: had? You had like the best gig in sports, and you just got a sense, or you, you just saw it from the momentum of, of how many people were paying attention." Or, I mean, yeah, I've, it was more a
1: sense of watching what was going on, on the internet and feeling like people were weren't writing the stuff I would write. I just assumed when I left, like I my, just other people would fill whatever the, whatever voice oh, I could say, Just everywhere, yeah. But and it didn't. really felt like there was, I was like, I could really have an impact, right. I think if I come back. I think I'd put more thought in the calm. It's also hard to, you know, when you go from like you're absolutely nothing, and doing nothing to all of a sudden, you're building a huge fan base. Like it freaks you out a little bit. Yeah. And that, and you start like second guessing everything and you're getting really criticized for the first time. And, um, it was, it was a lot, it was a lot to deal with. Like just what's happening. I went right. from, I'm the same guy. I'm living in the same apartment I was before, but now people in like Australia are reading my calm. Like what the fuck is going on?
0: Yeah. You and liked uh, it.
1: I liked it. And I didn't like it.
0: Yeah.
1: I actually didn't. I, I, there were things I liked. There are things I didn't like.
0: Uh huh. So. Well, what, why were you like rumored to be so difficult to the ESPN? I don't know. Um, I'm well, sure I wasn't
1: in, in some, in the early years. I think I was, I think I was. In what In what
0: way? How does that manifest itself? Um, being immature. Um, but wait, was it pushback back against authority or what, what? Yeah, it was a lot of stuff. I
1: was very concerned they were going to fuck with my calm. And for the first six months they did. Wow. They really did. They took jokes out. They took segments out. They took. They just basically watered down the calm just enough that the outside world couldn't totally notice, but I could. And it it really bothered me. And it was just, I got in this mode of just, leave me the fuck alone. Let me write this. Was it one guy? It was a bunch of guys. It was just the way they worked. I was nobody. And they're like, they're not going to change their rules for somebody. But what happened was my calm started to take off in
0: 2001.
1: Yeah. And I... I didn't really know that, but they knew it. And right. all of a sudden I got enough leeway and all that stuff, but I would still battle with people. There, there's a million things I would do over again, especially now that I'm in a position of being a boss. Yeah, And I've been in that position all decade. And I look back, I'm like, God, I would have hated being the boss of that person from 2001, <laughs> but you know, you just don't know any better. And, and then when I went back, I had a whole plan for what I was gonna do in 04. I had a really good year in 04 and what um, what happened i was just i knew what i was doing when did grantland happen grantland wasn't for another uh
0: 2011. oh really yeah at and that was within espn
1: yes that was my contract was up
0: at a time when i
1: just had a lot of leverage
0: so at 2004 you caught on and then you were just you know solid and you were making good money at espn i caught
1: on but that but the internet caught on yeah so the Red Sox, who hadn't won a World Series yet, they were taken off as, you know, that whole season, that whole journey what yeah. was happening. I was writing about them the whole season. And then by the time they started coming back against the Yankees, um, and I was writing, I was at the games, I was writing about it. And it felt for the first time like, whatever I was writing was like genuinely important. And people around the country were reading it. And yeah, it was the same thing, like how I felt about the Boston Globe people 20 years ago and there was, I think after one game I called, the editor in chief called me because I didn't want to write again. I was so burned out. I was up to like five in the morning writing pieces and um, the editor in chief, John Papinek, he called me and he was like, you you can't stop, you gotta keep going. Like everybody (laughs) is reading you right now. Like you gotta keep it going. This is what you wanted. And he gave me like this sports movie speech. I'm like, yeah, everybody's (laughs) reading. But I was so drained and tired like, (laughs) <laughs> but it really was a rush. It was like, this is what I wanted my whole life yeah. is to matter like this and to have people read my shit. And so that was the, that was just the beginning of the good run
0: all the yeah. way through.
1: It was fun. And it was, got, I got to do a lot of good stuff. I, I had a couple of contracts that come up and each time I, I wanted to start doing kind of start figuring out how to use ESPN for all the potential it had. Yeah. You know, it was the biggest sports model that, that existed, but they also had all these pieces to it. Like when I went back in 04, one of the things I was supposed to do was write a baseball movie for them, which I did. Uh And it was about to get made. And then the guy who ran ESPN at the time was in an owner's booth with George Steinbrenner, who was a character in this baseball movie. And he was like, we can't fuck with our partners. And they scrapped the baseball movie that I had spent like my whole summer writing. But at the same time- Did you get paid for it extra? I got paid for it. Yeah. and I did this animated series that didn't work and but I was just trying stuff because I was like, This company you know, is just there and it has money and it has resources and, and it has reach, reach. Yeah. And it's gonna try to do movies and T V and all these different things and like this is cool. So when I re signed with them in 06, uh, heading into 07, part of it was like, I wanna get more involved with production the entertainment side they had this group called ESPN original entertainment a couple months later i sent them the memo for 30 for 30 yeah which the name was in the title the premise for the most part was there and it was basically um centered around hbo is this monopoly on sports documentaries why yeah why don't we have it we're the worldwide leader why are we giving this up what we our documentaries we're putting so many out nobody knows which ones are good which ones aren't They have to be under a brand so people know that it's a certain thing and here's a gimmick we can use. I laid most of it out and Skipper and Wash, the people who run the company, both of them were like, this is great. Why don't you develop this? And my friend Connor Shell, who was like, now runs content for ESPN, but at the time was pretty low down on ESPN Films, I forwarded him the email and I was like, check this out. And he was like, this is cool. And he came up with the one wrinkle of instead of four people doing it, how about what if all 30, what if we went outside and got all 30 filmmakers to do the 30? And then he flew to LA, and we had this awesome marathon meeting in my in my little guest house in the back of the first house I bought here, and we sketched out the whole series. And uh-huh. then, we, then we fought to make it for, I don't know, the next year and a half until it finally happened. And he became a TV producer. Dead, I did, and at the same time I was writing my basketball book which was like it was my second book my first one did well but I felt like they had screwed it up put the columns yeah it was yeah. like a red Sox book and why did they I, screw it up they didn't release enough of them i was going to these book signings and they they had like 25 books and yeah. there was 300 people there and i was like this sucks yeah. um so then the, when i did the basketball book i was like i want i want to make this like the biggest basketball book, the biggest NBA book, it was literally it was seven hundred pages. But so I had that coming out at the same time. 30, 30 was coming out, and my contract was up. Yeah. So I used that as the leverage to do this site Grant, which ended up being Grantland that I had always thought would be cool. And I also had my podcast at the time too because I had started doing a podcast in 07 which we talked about on my podcast. Yeah. And they had no other podcasts that were really resonating, but so, they probably didn't get it right. They knew something was happening with mine. Because my mine was getting a lot of people within like a year. But
0: wasn't your one of your problems was it they, they, they just couldn't figure out how to monetize it? They couldn't something? figure out how to monetize
1: it, but they knew they knew it was something and they knew it was a the space they needed to be. So when I had that last contract, I had I was like their lead columnist. I had their lead podcast, I had thirty for thirty, and I had this basketball book that had just hit number one. So they want to lose you. They didn't want to lose me. It was it was just it was just <laughs> It was just the perfect lining up of events.
0: But like you but your your fourth, you couldn't have foreshadowed it. It was just the way things No. It yeah. was it was You didn't have some master plan. No, but
1: I will tell you though, when we knew that when we knew that thirty for thirty, when we found out when it was gonna be yeah. I really believed in it. I really thought it was gonna be a thing. Yeah. And my book was coming around the round time. And at some point early in that year I was like, Wow, this could be good for me. My contract's up, like this is this is sure. lining it's, up nicely. It's a great feeling
0: to where you can play something.
1: Yeah. I was like, yes. wow, I, this you, wasn't a hundred percent intentional, but man, this is like really nice how this is lining up where you have a, a negotiating position. Yeah. That's undeniable. But I had the year before I thought I was going to get fired. So that, that part was why too. Um, I was really battling at them. They were messing with my calm again and um, they canceled the Obama podcast. That
0: oh, that's right. yeah. was, uh,
1: I just, I am still not hundred percent over.
0: But, really?
1: Yeah, that was that was tough because I had a chance to get him before he even became president. And and they, what did they, What was their excuse? Their excuse was they it was at a point in the election where they had to they didn't want to affect it one way or the other with an ESPN thing. And if I had him,
0: then I'd have to have. Well, they probably didn't want to affect their fans. I who the hell knows? I mean, like it, that doesn't make sense. Like we we want to sit this one out because we'll probably you know. But I mean, I could see they just didn't want to politicize the platform. Yes.
1: Right. I'm saying what their garbage answer was. I'm not saying but what, right, what actually the reason was actually they didn't want to get political and they were probably worried this guy was going to win and people were going to point to his pen. It's like one of the reasons he won was he did this podcast and he has been- Yeah. And God. you
0: don't know, like they don't know their audience in that way, but you can make assumptions. I was so mad. <laughs> we did. we. So then all of
1: a sudden they they did something with both politicians later that year and they didn't even give me a heads up that I could have a chance to do the Obama thing and rick riley did something with he did he filled out a bracket or did something with one of the candidates and i was so mad i had a friday column due that week it was a picks column and i handed every week and i wrote this whole column about john mccain helping me with my picks where it just skewered john mccain and i knew they wouldn't run it yeah but i handed it in to fulfill my contractual agreement for that week yeah but knowing that it had no chance. But it was made up, right? It was all made up. And it was like John McCain, he smells like bologna. And like, it was just, I, I just, I really it went fuck after. You. It was a fuck you. It was a fuck you, and I knew they wouldn't run it. So it was not going great. And then uh, <laughs> then Skipper, who was running content at the time, not ESPN, we met at some, we met at this, they just built LA Live, the ESPN building. We yeah. met at this creepy conference room on the fifth floor. And, yeah. I really felt like I, not that I felt like I was getting fired, I felt like I was gonna get assassinated. Like it was like one of those things that nobody around him was like, Am I gonna get killed? And uh, and we just kind of hashed it out. And yeah. he was, you know, for a long time, the best boss
0: I ever had. And we just, I was like, Here's what's going on. He's like, Oh, I didn't even know that." is um, Isn't that weird that when yeah. you have those chance meetings with the people that are really in charge, you realize just how insulated they are by underlings? Yeah, cause they're delegating everything. and. I, it's something that
1: I'm really wary of. To save your own of. ass. Yeah, it's something I'm really wary of. I want to always know what's going on with people underneath me, even if it's like the lowest level people. But sometimes you just don't. And you don't know and things can go a little out of control and you come in too late to it. Right. So, so, so yeah. That's, so it's another year, lesson. Yeah, this is another lesson. So within a year I went from thinking I was going to get assassinated To getting this giant contract extension to create Grantland. They were going to hire a gun to take you out. I didn't know. I was like, why isn't anybody here? Am I going to get killed?
0: (laughs) And then you renegotiated and you you got Grantland.
1: Got Grantland, which um, was not named Grantland yet. And I didn't know what the name was, but I knew what I thought might work. And you were the editor? Yeah, I found all the people. um, And it was at a time in the internet when... um, Everything was immediate, fast, fast, fast. And what year was that? This is you're going 2010, 2000, end of 2009 and 2010, and it was a lot of uh, you got to react, you got to got to get stuff up, got to get fast, got to get traffic, got a lot. It. And meanwhile, I was writing these comms on ESPN that were like six thousand words, and they were the most read comms. So I was like, this can't be true because people are still reading my comms. right? So I, I thought there was a, a chance to create a site that had all kinds of things um, kind of playing a little off what I was doing with my columns with sports and pop culture, but also some good long form writing, some wackier stuff. Um, and really the biggest thing for me was I felt like there was a lot of good writers out there that people just weren't seeing. Yeah. There was a, a talent thing that I think I could see. Cause there cause was I'm, no,
0: there was no curation,
1: no curation. Right. And I think, th- I think I could see it because I'm a writer and yeah. I think, it's like how with comics you probably you can you always when somebody you feel like they're in your corner that probably means they're good yeah and i would look around and be like why isn't that person have a job yet and right then, Whoa, wow that's weird they're using that person wrong i would use them this way and i just started kind of trusting my instincts with that and writers i liked and people i liked and if i put them under one umbrella what would that look like and you know, people were not happy when we launched Greatland. It was really- Wasn't, why? Because it wasn't sports-centric enough? Uh, people were like, fuck you, why do you get to do this? It really was, that was the attitude that first year From was. who? Just the internet, the internet that hates everything. They were um, like, fuck you, Bill Simmons, for doing yeah, this? Yeah, why is a writer, get why, why are they building a site around a writer? Huh. Why are they doing this? Yeah. It's a vanity project. Uh-huh. And, you know, we were trying to create this site that, just did good stuff that didn't take shots at other people. Yeah, um, that tried all kinds of different things and would also have a podcast component and eventually some other stuff. And um,
0: so it, it
1: was a big ambitious,
0: you know, internet thing.
1: Yeah, but it was within ESPN, right? And that was another thing that made people suspicious, right? And then I got Closterman and we used. A couple of big writers for freelance pieces which made people think, Oh, they're just they're they're like the Yankees. They're spending crazy amounts of money. We were not spending crazy amounts of <laughs> on money writers at all. We were, the the thing we were doing was finding young people that really had not caught the wave of their career yet, but we were gonna help them get there. And right. we weren't spending a lot of money. And I, there was this perception that we were, which was always oh, was so frustrating. I just had to keep my mouth shut. But and it was um, successful, right?
0: I mean it, Yeah, it was I, I think by about some guy th- some guy wrote for Grantland that like really un- just unloaded on me one on one piece, but it was very well written it bothered me though, oh really, yeah, I can't remember his name we wrote we wrote a
1: flattering thing at the ringer about you, I remember,
0: yeah, no, this is way back oh, it was about it was about your podcast or something yeah, I
1: remember that so by by the time we launched Grantland, our yeah. staff loved you, and i that's when I was like, I might have to take Marin out. Like could just have him <laughs> murdered i mean i'd better have to bring him to the assassination room at yeah the ESPN RD, at espn yeah i was like no nah, fuck this guy i have the best podcast sure and uh but yeah so it took it took probably a year and a half but the big thing was we found so much talent and talent's gonna win eventually. Yeah. And we had so many good people and then it's almost like putting together a football team and it's the same thing right now at the ringer where you you try to survive the first year and the second year you figure out who you are and then you start adding a couple more pieces and all yeah. of a sudden it's like yeah you get a cornerback and oh now I got a right tackle and all of a sudden your team's good.
0: Yeah. But and like it's really cool. It's the coolest thing I've ever been involved with. Well what what happened with the uh, ESPN and Grantland? How did that all come come unglued? <sighs> I mean, I mean that, that's like an hour long answer. But but it was it was a successful site, but it was still at a time where you know it wasn't completely clear how to make money from a site. Right. It's it was
1: funny. They never mentioned money to me ever for like the from like a budget like this is right these costs are riding too high and that stuff. We were really responsible with what we spent stuff on. Um we were this boutique site that did not belong in this giant infrastructure that ESPN had for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Um the biggest one was their sales force which is super successful and should be this way, is used to selling things in bulk. Yeah. And they're used to being like- To big companies. Yeah. We got $50 million from Kia. Yeah. We got $38 million from Miller Lite. They're not used to chasing money, and they certainly weren't going to sell like the mid-rolls in my, in my uh, podcast or yeah. anything like that, but at the same time would not have allowed me to use mid-roll, who both of us use. Right. Which would have just made- us money and like you know, the last year I was there, my fourth year, I had one of the biggest podcasts, and I think we were making $750,000 total for the whole podcast network for everything. We had, I think, nine of the 10 biggest podcasts at ESPN. So, when things started going south, they're like, Well, your budget's high, and I couldn't get a headcount the last 18 months I was there, we couldn't grow, which makes it really hard.
0: Um, to just keep doing great stuff, and they were still adhering to the old paradigm.
1: Yeah, they were like, "Look, here's what here's what your site brings in." And I'm like, "Yeah, but my site should be bringing in twice as much as this. We're doing well, and we matter." And the skipper yeah. skipper had told me all along, like, "Try to create Rolling Stone in the '70s yeah. for the internet," and that's what we were trying to do. And we were in year four. We didn't have a web designer. We had, I think, two copy editors. I had a video audio staff of four people, and meanwhile, we're cranking out podcasts left and right and videos like it was not sustainable and that's what i was trying to tell them we we had 50 people at the peak of grantland and i have 90 people at the ringer in two plus years you know it just yeah. wasn't sustainable right and so we were fighting about that but then i had other issues because like i was on the nba show and i didn't want to come back for the second year um at all yeah and they talked me into coming back and it turned out to be a disaster and um, what
0: show was that? What, it was that
1: is the show called NBA Countdown, which yeah. is um,
0: it's on ESPN. Yeah, it's like comes on
1: before and after basketball games. But I had a point like in two thousand. So you're there
0: with the other three guys.
1: Yeah, one of them was my buddy Jalen. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's just they do it in the most missionary position stale pot, way yeah. possible. Right. And you just kind of wait and take turns to speak. And I really thought it was going to be a more creative show. It was like my worst nightmare to be on a show like that. Or just like <laughs> yeah great point jalen yeah. and here's the other thing about charlotte right and it's just like just shoot me in the head um but when i was there in 2013 and 14 i i literally had five jobs right and and i was burning out yeah big time and yeah somehow like losing your mind a little bit yeah 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 i look back now i'm like what were you doing uh, it's like, you like i don't even remember stuff
0: like somebody that's people, what happens when you're that overwhelmed all the time? I, I literally
1: don't remember stuff. Like Somebody emailed me this interview I did with George Gervin, the yeah. Iceman, yeah, who's like the 32nd best player ever. Yeah. And I talked to him for 40 minutes. I have no recollection of it. I don't even remember what year. I was like, how am I in this? It was like seeing, it was like I had a drug problem and it was all, no, I, out.
0: yeah, if you don't have, if you don't make any space for it to relax, it's, you can't. i was
1: was running grandland we were doing second second volume of 30 for 30 yeah i was doing my column which obviously i have to research and figure out and you wanted peabody right yeah we wanted peabody for 30 that's a big deal i'm doing my podcast i never got a peabody yeah go ahead (laughs) i'm doing my podcast and then i was on this nba show like 50 times a year Uh, and it was just too much and uh
0: so you're about to pop wasn't great wasn't (laughs) great and then how did it all end
1: I spent a lot of time thinking about it and I realized after the fact I was really traumatized by the whole thing because like, there reached a point where I really loved working for that place and I really wanted it to be better. And I put, I guarantee I worked harder than anybody who was there at trying to do stuff. Yeah. And it was just so weird to be resented by that in some circles. The strangest thing that happened was um, Magic left the, the, right before I started doing the second season, Magic left the show he left countdown yeah he owned the dodgers he didn't have time to do it will had left the show which was its own messy thing and magic left and i was like heartbroken because he was one of the reasons i came back like he's spending a year with magic johnson was amazing he's yeah. an amazing guy and uh and i was i was just trying to wrap my head around it and then the next day somebody leaked uh Somebody from ESPN leaked a story to a sports blog that Magic left because it had been becoming my show and there was a power struggle between me and him. Yeah, Like, I love Magic. I, I was like, when that happened, when people when people are leaking stuff that you work with to try to damage you, that's when it goes to a whole other level. And and I just couldn't wrap my head around it because I, I was thinking, all I'm doing is killing myself for this company. I, like, when I finally left... I had so much vacation time accrued from the last few years that I got this giant check at, in like December 2015. It yeah. was like I was like, what the fuck is this? Like and it was like, you know, twenty vacation weeks or something really? for the last few years. It was crazy. Nice. But um when I got suspended, it definitely it definitely turned, which was its own issue. When was that? That was uh, September 2014. I went after uh, Roger Goodell on a podcast. Yeah. And um, it's funny because w- this was another example. I was doing so many different things that. Um, did you know it was going to happen? Did you know you were going to cause shit? No, I knew it was going to cause. I knew it was going to be called, put them in a pissy situation. Yeah. I didn't think it was going to blow up. Yeah. And it was one of those things where I did a podcast and then Jalen and I immediately spent six hours in the electrical closet filming all these basketball videos and we were just phones turned off the whole thing and the pod went up and it started to become a thing and by the time I got out it was like all hella broken loose. <laughs> and but it was one of those things where when you're working too many hours and doing too many yeah. things, you get sloppy. Yeah. And I should have listened to that podcast. I never listened to it. We yeah. they I, two of the people that worked for me were like, Should you listen to this? Hey, you sure you wanna listen to something like, no, it's fine. I trust you guys. And uh and I never listened to it. And if I had heard it, there's like two things I would have taken out that might have made it a little more I wanted to keep everything I I said, but I think I could have finessed f- it better. I could have finessed it.
0: Yeah. yeah. And
1: I didn't. And that <laughs> night, like I'm I have the guy's running his pins like screaming at me. Yeah. Um he was in a lathered up state. Yeah. I hope because of what I said on the podcast. <laughs> um but um but yeah, it was it was uh it was really strange. And then everything turned.
0: And And then like, so like you leave ESPN and then HBO was just there, right there, ready to go. Yeah, well, so what happened was after I got suspended,
1: um, people kind of were reading the tea leaves and I knew I wanted to go and I was trying to figure out what to do. And um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I was also really burned out and I was really mad about how things, I just didn't understand why things had to, go from like doing so much good stuff from 09 to 2013 to all of a sudden it had become adversarial. I just couldn't believe like things had flipped like that.
0: But did you know fundamentally that what you had created with Grantland was a, a, uh, uh, a successful model and that the only thing that was really stopping you was the infrastructure of ESPN.
1: Yeah. And it wasn't even a stopping thing. We were fine. Yeah. Um, But I think if you want to grow and if you're ambitious, you know, ESPN had they, one of the issues with ESPN is is it's really hard to think on your feet with like jobs and how to fill stuff and Yeah, everything is a process. Yeah. And if you need a designer, it's like three months. Like if I need a designer three months, I just hire a designer. I have a designer next week. Well yeah, but that's
0: sort of like the difference between like the internet and newspapers. Yeah Right.
1: Um but we you know, I've I, I felt like the four people that I took from Grantland to try to figure out what the ringer was um, were people that I just worked really well with. And I thought had a good sense of kind of the same sense of talent, but I knew that I was going to be much busier this time around. I needed to have an inner circle that I just didn't have to worry about. Yeah. That was the biggest thing I learned at Grantland. is like your inner circle has to be there. So with the HBO thing, it was like um, I knew I wanted to do like a podcast type interview show and I knew I wanted to, do sports documentaries and stuff because I love doing that stuff. And then we had to rush the show, and and, uh, the spirit behind what I wanted to do with the show, I actually, it's funny, it was a little similar to the Kimmel thing 15 years ago. Yeah. Where I felt like the opportunity was like, all this stuff's working on podcasts. Why can't this work on a TV show?
0: Yeah, which was
1: what? And the reality, just interviews. I I felt like I had had, at that point, nine years of interviewing people and I felt like I was getting pretty good at it. Right. And I felt like this is an inefficiency on television, these awesome interviews. Why does everybody just point to Charlie Rose? Like uh-huh. There should be all types of interviews. Yeah. And the reality is now I look back, I'm like, I was already in the good spot. We, have, You and I, we have podcasts where we can interview people. Yeah, The, the interviews that you and I can do in this format are just going to be better than any TV interview. I mean, yeah. I had my own issues with the TV stuff, but- um, what do you
0: mean?
1: Well, it's just like when you're. I knew this going in. I'm like, I'm not John Stewart. I'm not. Yeah. I'm. I'm not a performer. I'm not right. a stand up. Like yeah. The interviews have to carry this. This yeah. has to be a really smart show. Sure. And it drifted toward a show that I'm. I'm still not sure what happened. <laughs> <laughs> the show I wanted to do. What was, happened
0: to the inner circle? With
1: well, that, well, how, in that case, maybe not a good one. But, <laughs> um, but the show I wanted to do, I just and it's a hundred percent my fault. Because if if you don't have a vision, the right vision for something, or if you think you think you know what your vision is, and then it drifts into another place, like you can either stop
0: it or. How did it drift though? I mean, but you know, if you think, unfortunately, fundamentally, with a a visual medium that requires people to engage their eyes and their ears, I know. uh, You know the continuity, like you know, because like with what we do here. You you can almost do this passively. Yeah, I know. Uh, in terms of take it in, so like you know when you got to do a song and dance, you know, with in a medium that requires song and dance, uh, and you're not a song and dance man. Gonna... I, f- I found this out the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was ways to do it. I, I think it could have been once a month. Yeah. I think
1: it could have been loaded with interviews. Right. And maybe it moves pivots three times and has stuff, but I wasn't thinking that way, and neither were neither were they. I I really w- felt at the time. That interviews the way we're doing them on a podcast could work on TV, and you quickly
0: find out no. Well, now there's like you know Netflix is as a platform is doing long form interviews with guy you know with the legends with you know with Letterman. Uh, you know but,
1: what's interesting though that I I so they ran that first one. I love Letterman and, and Obama. I didn't watch it. I, I think haven't. I would have listened to it if it was a podcast though. Yeah, I which don't. goes back to my point of like I just fucked up. I haven't watched it. I mean, I don't What's to. fun about watching two people talk, but when you're in the car or when you're working out or like I'm sure a million, whoever's listening to this right now, I'm sure they're in their car. I'm sure they're at their desk. Or at the gym or walking or their, their gym, dog. Or they're walking all this stuff. Painting something. And yeah. when you're actually in front of a television,
0: you know, it's got you, especially now well, in the you know, second like, screen era. Right. And, and with someone like Letterman, you just want to see him like be quick. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm, right. Not, I'm not looking to him for in-depth interviews i really? I'll tell you though, I don't have any regrets
1: and um, I my whole thing is you just gotta trash it. And yeah. it can't work every time. All right, it so really but, can't. but
0: that show went away, but you're still in business with them in a big way. <sighs> I am. We we have a couple cool things coming that we haven't announced yet that I'm excited well, about. Well, what is so the ringer just that became the focus. Like you still are partners with HBO and you've created a podcast network. You're gener- you're putting up three new podcasts a day. we're putting up like six we have we have like 24 shows
1: now yeah we the ringers once the show got canceled threw myself more in the ringer and kind of waited to see what was gonna happen with hbo because i think you know they were also getting the at&t merger all that stuff and I, i think from a production standpoint there was a wait and see thing there for a little while but now it seems like i think
0: they're gonna be a little more active so You've as you've evolved with the internet, with you know, for starting with AOL and then moving into to ESPN, then finding your way to Grantland and and actually creating a platform for basically. So now you're at the Ringer. Now what? where Whereas Grantland wasn't making money. Th- this is some sort of partnership where you have a lot of stake in it and you're making money. Yeah, right. Not, you're not just getting seed money from a big
1: company. No, it's, I didn't get. We didn't do investors like that. We. It was really important to me, especially after my last experience, to spend the first couple of years making decisions based on what was good and and just betting on talent that we liked again and taking chances and trying to figure out what a website is in 2016, 17, and 18 when things are so fast. When, when we were innovating the site in 2015 and the start of 2016, Facebook was like the big traffic driver. Right. And we didn't trust it. We just felt like, what happens if they change the algorithm? Everyone's screwed. We yeah. have to have a site that has people come to the main page. We have to have a podcast network. We have to be able to promote everything. And over the last nine months, it really fell into place. And and it's, it's you know, it was much harder than Grantland. Because Grantland, we still had the checkbook. Sure. At, for, especially for the first year where I could be like, I like that writer. Let's get them. And, and, and the infrastructure they had people doing stuff for us. right? Yeah, we're talking... First four months I had my podcast we're doing it in my guest house. Yeah. And Andy and Chris, Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan, they do this podcast called The Watch, Pop Culture Podcast. They're coming over to my guest house and doing it. Yeah. And people are just walking through my house and it's like my kids, like a burglar could have walked in yeah. and taken one of my kids. And yeah, they, yeah. I have people they wouldn't even flinch and be like, Oh, you must be with the podcast. Like, Yeah, that's where I am is they throw them in a van. <laughs> and it was just grassroots trying to figure out everything on the fly. How do we have how do we have uh Healthcare. How do we right. do benefits? Sure. Where's our office going to be? But yeah, um, really, building a business from you know with was, a big business is the hardest thing. I can't even tell you how hard it is, and and uh, and how scary it is when you don't really know how to do a lot of it. But, but I, don't
0: you hire people that know how to do well, it? Well, that's the thing. We had
1: a good inner circle, and uh, and I had the the Grantland people that were running the site that are just great. And you got them now back. Yeah, and they and so I, I knew I trusted them. I knew like at least we're going to find writers and we're going to build a culture. The biggest thing we wanted this time was the culture has to be like lights out. You just have to have great people. Like we have great people. Like really good character people yeah. that look out for each other and and you can kind of feel it. That stuff once people the relationships build, that stuff spills in the site and now like digital video and stuff like that. All this goofy stuff we're, we're trying and you know, 2018 is like the best time ever to be a content producer. Yeah, it's not just all the TV streaming and all that stuff, but it's all these different digital platforms and all these different ways you can reach people right away. And it's whoever has the best idea, I think, has a has a much better chance than maybe they did ten years ago.
0: The uh, the Andre doc is very good too. Thank you. How much of a part of the process in terms of editing and stuff were you there for? All of that? Were you uh, giving creative input? I mean, yeah. I think if you're doing it correctly, the director
1: is all in, as you, as you, yeah. kind of, as we discussed. Right. But they also need a friend and a sounding board and somebody who can gently talk them out of stuff. Was he a wrestling time. fan? Yeah, yeah, he was. Okay. But they get lost in it, and they hit a really dangerous point, and they need at least one person <laughs> right, who they right. trust completely. <laughs> pull them out. Well, who says to them <laughs> like, "I know you love that France footage." But if we just take that one part out, like just try it. It might not work. And they need a friend. Yeah. They hit a point where they just need a friend. <laughs> Comics, do. I feel like- They've been out on the
0: water too long
1: while They really do. <laughs> yeah. they, they don't see it clearly anymore. Yeah. And it becomes, and I identify with it because when I did my basketball book, it was so big and it hit a point where I was the only person who could see how it all fit together. And I really needed somebody else. And it, it just was too hard and it was just me and I ended up with a 700 page book and it should have been 500.
0: <laughs> do people um,
1: love the book though? It seems like they do. Yeah. It actually does seem like,
0: because uh, I mean, there's a million things, things like, I change already, but I know, but it's one of those things where if it, if you put that much of your heart into it, that like, it's got to have a pretty hardcore following.
1: My thought was the normal move would be to do two books for three hundred fifty pages each and get paid twice. I'm like, fuck that! I'm doing one awesome book, and now I'm like, I should have done two books. could have spread it out;
0: it would have been nice. <laughs> and how much do you feel in your in your uh, heart and soul that that is there any you know to you know now that you're doing these uh, these documentaries or this is your first documentary for HBO Sports? Is there is there a good healthy amount of uh, fuck you to ESPN in this? No, what's weird about ESPN is
1: everybody, I think pretty much, I don't want to say everybody because there's a couple of people left, but most of the people that I had issues with or I feel like, you know, just ran ran my course with, shall we say, oh, are, yeah. are gone. Oh yeah. And the people that are running the company now, I really like. And some of them are my good friends. like the guy I created 30 for 30 with runs content.
0: Oh yeah. Um, That's how it works. People move up.
1: Yeah, people Old move guys up. guys go out. I I actually am buying US stock these days because I I think it's the most rational, higher level group they've had in a while. It's a really complicated time, but they're a little more equipped too. I think the leadership they had before, they just were people that just didn't get where shit was going. Like they didn't see like, something like Grantland, we were a a digital studio for them inside their company that was trying all this shit. Yeah, And they looked at us like, I like was like, ah, this fucking thing. And it was yeah. like, this thing is like the future of where the internet's going. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, You
0: should be like, hey, what else could you guys come up with? And, those and they guys just didn't gone. see it. Well, that's funny because it's not unlike that thing, that run-in you had with the main guy who's insulated, is that a lot of people at those, at those sized companies, if they're working, they just want to keep shit the same. Yeah. You know, and yeah. a lot of times it has to crumble in a very dramatic way for shit to change. Yeah, and I think- the, it's, the ESPN thing's complicated what's happened
1: to it and I, I that's why I think it's actually in really good shape now they miss some stuff but the biggest thing was they really underestimated the cord cutting thing and they planned out their business for this decade Yeah, at the beginning of this decade thinking that they had this amount of money coming in from cable and from satellite and when it started going backwards I was there and I know this for a fact they didn't know what was happening and I have this great email that somebody sent uh, like the research thing and they were trying to figure out I think it was 2013 or 14 why the subs had dropped the subs are what they call like the cable and the whatever and it was like it was all these different reasons and one of the reasons was World Cup fatigue it was after (laughs) the World Cup it was like we we think that maybe people are it was because it was why, why ratings had dropped. Right. It was like we think one of the reasons is World Cup fatigue, tired. And then like much later in the email, it's like another possibility is something called cord cutting. It was like watching those internet com- <laughs> those commercials on YouTube from the 1970s about yeah. watch out for child molestation. Yeah, um, this is yeah. like this thing called cord cutting might end up being a problem mm. and I was like yeah I think so yeah it's it. gonna be a major problem yeah but they're they're rallying though by in five years they'll be an OTt Disney will have a whole OTt service that every family is gonna buy because every Disney movie is going to be on there and every comic book movie and well, it's be, gonna have its own
0: platform you mean like yeah they're yeah.
1: forming the soul and ESPN will be under that and what people don't understand until you have kids is the iPad and streaming services become like your virtual babysitter.
0: Yeah. You
1: gotta have like them. as soon as your yeah. kid's old enough to be able to maneuver an iPad, it's yeah. like you're out of jail. It's like I'm gonna go in the other room. <laughs> I'm gonna go in that room. Yeah, and they don't care. No, they're yeah. like they're just like pressing
0: buttons. But yeah. as soon as that happens,
1: yeah. You know it's we well good. we
0: hope that it, it all ends up okay for those kids. We'll see. <laughs> I I'll tell you though, going back to those
1: parkland kids, it was the first time I was like, this generation yeah. This might be a generation that really makes a difference and is is just thoughtful about stuff and mature enough in a different way. This is what Chuck and I talked about when we did a pod two weeks ago. The guys coming into the NBA now are these like polished guys and they're good interviews and they handle yeah. their business well. And right. you're like, how the fuck? You're 19? How are you like an adult? Yeah. And it just seems like that's starting to... Be what happens with this specific generation
0: yeah they don't they're, have they're yeah.
1: maturing fast i think maybe because of the internet
0: yeah because they're adapting to the pace of things and to the tech you know to, not just the tech but to you know how to behave like a machine it's good <laughs> <laughs> i do just go out there and act like an ambitious machine be polite
1: see you're like me i do worry and i really i'm fanatical about it with my kids i'm so worried that they're not going to have social skills. My kids have really good social skills right now, but I always like trying to get them with people and interact with people. And when you meet somebody, shake their hand and it's stuff that you're starting not to see anymore.
0: Well, I think that's probably that, that would be the liability. I wonder how that really pans out where, where they're perfectly polite and they know how to behave, but how much experience do they really have with, you know, engaging with people? Do they
1: have a sense of humor?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. You
1: can have a sense of humor digitally, but, be the worst hanging in person yeah. in person and like with my son like i i was letting him watch south park when he was like eight yeah all those shows you like he, wa- him. he watched atlanta with me last night like i want him to have a sense of humor i don't care if he's 10 like i want him to know what's funny and not funny now
0: how's he getting how's he going good? he's
1: fucking hilarious oh
0: good he's so good atlanta's a good show atlanta's a really good show really good show There's Something beyond comedy that thing the uh it's the show that i'm I looked forward to the most. Yeah, it turned out me too. My girlfriend turned me on to it and I was sort of like late coming to it. But I liked Donald a lot, you know, but I just didn't watch it. And then I watched the first 10 like in a day. Yeah. And now I'm like on it, you know. It's funny watching with my son because I'm really hoping he's going to laugh
1: at a couple of the subtle parts yeah. that I would hope he laughed at. And he did. I'm like, oh man, I'm doing a good job. Oh, good. I'm doing a good job with
0: this He's doing a good job with everything, man. Oh, and thanks, thank you. And thanks for coming over.
1: By the way, this was... I never do podcasts. I'll probably never do another one.
0: How was it? Why, do, you were going to tell me
1: why. Weren't you going to tell me I don't one? know. I always felt like I had my own podcast and it was like, if I do one, then 20 people are going to want it and then I'm just doing the same podcast over and over again. And
0: I don't know. I just always felt like I have a podcast. Why would somebody want to hear well, on another well, podcast? Well, it was funny because when, when I started at the beginning, especially I think it was more of the comic driven podcast. We right. You all, had to do quid pro quo. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it actually helped, I think. I think it helped everybody.
1: I think what podcasts, I mean, podcasts have been amazing in so many different ways, but how they've brought life and humanity to the comic, to the comic industry.
0: <laughs> yeah. They're
1: not, has, not just a bunch of weird nighttime monsters. Well, it's turned, it's turned into this like 10 years of therapy sessions with comics on each other's <laughs> things crossed with some really funny stuff. And, yeah. And uh, it's such a great medium. And, and it was always the case. Like, I don't know when you've grasped it, but. The first time I did one, I was like, this makes sense. This is cool. So we do this interview and then people get to it. This is is so logical.
0: Yeah, and it was great. I liked liked the idea that you could stretch out by yourself and with people. That I didn't have to be funny, that I didn't have to, uh, to, you know, and that I could talk to people about me. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's how it started. We didn't talk about you that much in this one. I'm over that. That was the first hundred. (laughs) Thanks for coming. Thank you. that's it that's the show that i want to thank bill for coming i uh, i thought that was a, was a great conversation engaged and nice and uh i also i think i'll be doing one more um intro in here uh before the end of the month and i'm going to be on the road in europe doing my a few parts of the world tour uh you can get tickets and uh, venue information at wtfpod.com tour get tickets for london stockholm oslo amsterdam and dublin also, the guitar thing—I'll get it going. I'll get it going. let well, give me till the uh, beginning of um, May to uh, to get the amps up and going and get the car- guitars out here. And you know these things take time, but uh, give me a month. All right, Boomer lives.